Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast, where we dive deep into the minds of extraordinary professionals, uncovering the stories, inspiration, and wisdom that have shaped their careers. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, and I'm thrilled to embark on this journey with you. Today's guest is Sean Stimson, who transitioned out of a very successful career in finance and launched a single sponsor search to ultimately acquire Midden Fluid Power Corporation, where he is now six months into his role as CEO and loving it. In this episode, we look at what Sean has learned about leadership and what strategies have worked well for him in changing industries. And I'll let Sean share a bit about his background in his own words. Sure. So uh, Sean Stimson, I'm the CEO of Mitten Fluid Power Corporation, which is the Parker Hannafin distributor for upstate New York. So Parker Hannafin is a global leader in the manufacturing of hydraulic, pneumatic, and fluor connector products that we distribute to smaller OEMs, as well as our MRO customers in the upstate New York footprint. I acquired the business in December of 2022 after, we'll call it a nine-month sale process. And that was in December 22, marked 18 months of searching for a business to buy. Prior to launching my search in June of 21, I spent just over 20 years in the wealth management space, 13 years as a leader in various management positions, and then the rest of the time as an individual contributor. Most of that time was as a financial advisor at Merrill Lynch. Great. Thank you for that comprehensive background. How have the first 100 days of your CEO life been? It's been great, actually. I was lucky enough to inherit a great management team made up of, uh, call it five senior people within the organization that were here when the previous owner owned the business. And I was very fortunate in the sense where the owner that I purchased the company from, there were two businesses. And the one that they kept was where the owner spent most of his time. And the one that I bought was where he really delegated the leadership responsibility to these five individuals. And so it's actually been great. I would say the majority, if not all, really welcomed me with open arms and were very open to change. You know, as far as one piece of the business sat on this technology platform that was very old. And typically in my career, whenever you go through a technology conversion, it's always meant with some resistance. These guys were very open to converting to the platform that the rest of the company was on. That was a blessing in disguise that they were, or maybe not a blessing in disguise, but a shock to me that they were that open to converting. And so it's really been a good experience. That's heartening to hear. As I understand, there can be some challenges when you're coming in from a new industry or from a different industry, rather, and you're dealing with building trust with the incumbent leadership. Have you experienced any kind of challenges there? It sounds like it was pretty smooth sailing. Yeah, surprisingly, no. They all knew I was green to this industry, and I knew more than most, having searched specifically in the space for 18 months and then doing my diligence prior to that. So I knew more than the average person, but still relative to some of the folks here, I was very green. I think one of the things that I did, and I did this during my leadership career in the wealth management space is, you know, I got to know everybody individually and spent some time individually with everybody and got to know their background, their resume, you know, their family life, et cetera. At the same time, you know, in some of those one-on-one meetings, I covered some anxiety that was very deep. So that was good to have those meetings and get to know them. But the team here has been very good 
as far as teaching me the business. And, you know, I spend time in the warehouse with some of the guys out there learning kind of the grassroots of this business, the day-to-day of this business. And so it actually, I haven't met any resistance. And maybe that's also because I, all the people in the company know that I respect what they do. That respect reciprocates respect back to me that I'm willing to learn and just at this point in time, don't know as much as them. I see. One thing I learned from my own MBA experience was that sometimes it's better to lean into your strengths and not try to be the most well-rounded tool in the tool shed. I imagine with 20 years of experience in the wealth management space, that's something that you might do in your current role, but you probably also have spent a lot of time learning about this new industry new to you. How do you balance that? Yeah, it's a good question. So I would point more towards the 13 years that I spent in leadership. So, you know, I understand the HR component, the compensation component, legal, finance, and really just general leadership. Those were my strong suits coming in. And on top of learning the business, I also needed to learn things like working capital. You know, I work for big companies and big companies have very deep pockets. And, you know, I never had to worry about cash conversion and dealing with receivables and things like that. And then I never had to, outside of doing technology conversions or getting people to adopt new technology, I never had to deal with kind of the IT component of being a leader. That's also been a learning experience for me. But to your point on the strengths, I don't think I would have had as successful of a transition had I not had that 13 years of leadership experience in coming in and clearly articulating my vision and where I wanted the company to go and recruiting people to be on the same boat as I am and moving us forward. And all that played into, I think, keeping the company going. The company was already moving in the right direction before I got here. And my hope is the investments that we've made in the first six months are going to propel or keep that growth moving. And I have to thank the leadership team here by really embracing me from the start and helping me execute and and make those strategic investments right off the bat. And again, I think a big part of that is just getting to know everybody within the company and understanding who they are, where they come from, what their concerns are, etc. And it's been a very successful first six months. Great. I heard too, there's kind of an art and science to figuring out how long to keep the outgoing leadership team in place or the outgoing owner. And it very much varies case by case. I was curious in your respects, it sounds like you had his blessing. Your time one-on-one with the staff has paid dividends, but how did you negotiate or navigate that transition from having the leader giving you his blessing in front of the team, having him on your speed dial for like questions that might arise, things you didn't foresee, and you having ownership, the buck stops with you now. Yeah, good question. So as I mentioned, the company that I bought was one of two companies that this gentleman owns. And we actually still share space with him. So he's not a phone call away. I can just get up and walk over to his office. And during the negotiation phase of the process, he made it clear that he didn't want to spend the next three years being an employee of both companies. He was very clear that he wanted to exit after the first six months. And that was the deal that we came up with, that we would pay him for six months and basically pay him half his compensation. That's how it was structured before. You know, Half of his comp came from one business, the other half came from the other business. 
but I would tell you the more I got to know the leaders within the business that we bought, the more comfortable I was on, you know, not really leaning on him. And then to my point before, he really did delegate the day-to-day leadership to the leadership team here, the five people that I referenced before. So I really haven't had to lean on him all too much. I still go to him, you know, even though we're outside of that six-month window, learning about, hey, you do things this way. Why is that? Or this employee acts this way. There's got to be some history there. And so he's said to me all along that he's always available as a resource and his job, you know, he said this to me right before we closed. He said, because the company has his name on it, he feels like he needs to help me be as successful as I can be and and made that commitment to me early, even though monetarily, he's not benefiting beyond the transaction. So, you know, he is a good guy, high integrity guy that wants to see me succeed. And he's clearly done that as far as the time that he's allocated to me and the time he'll continue to allocate to me. That's great. So this company is over half a century old, correct? Yeah, 52 years. So I imagine you have respect for that legacy, but you also need to perhaps want to also introduce some new methods, some new ideas, et cetera. How do you strike that balance? Yeah. So it's more like, how do I not screw this up? Because as I mentioned, the business had been performing well and it's continued to perform well since we came in and bought it. Okay. You know, I'm very careful as I was when I was in leadership, you know, as far as implementing any change, you know, never mind something that is major relative to changing the strategy of the business. But, you know, I mentioned this before that the five people that are on the leadership team and really the rest of the the company were very open to the strategy that I wanted to put in place, which didn't necessarily replace how they were doing things before. I would tell you it complemented what they were doing before. And so it wasn't like we were pivoting and going 180 degrees the other way. It was more, you know, a 90 degree turn and complementing some of the things that, that the company had historically done. You know, everybody's been respected because they all believe in this company. I mean, if you take out anybody that's been hired in the last two years, I think the average tenure is around 19 years wow. of the company. So the majority of the people here have been here for quite a long time and they want to see it succeed. And they, you know, were excited about the success that they were having in the last couple of years. And they're excited to see the company keep going in the direction that it's going. And so that also played a role into how receptive they were to new ideas. And, you know, I will tell you, I did hire a consultant that helped me through some of the things in the due diligence process. And we've continued to leverage him post-sale, not extremely frequently, but I think his knowledge of the industry and of this business has really helped me as well. And he's interacted with a number of the employees here. And I think the fact that I'm leveraging that resource, you know, also helped my credibility and the pivot that we've implemented in our strategy. He's played a big role in that. I think him selling the people here, or or at least the leadership team, as far as why we need to go in that direction has also played a role in, in their receptiveness. That's great to hear. People do seem to respond very well when they see someone giving it their all, taking their role seriously. You mentioned respect, spending time with people. I I notice also a self-awareness, kind of delegating what you don't know. What other leadership lessons have you learned in in your last six months? 
So I would tell you, if I look back on the 13 years that I spent in leadership, there's really kind of three parallels that I would share with you. Okay. When I first joined Morgan Stanley back in 2008, John Mack was still the CEO. And he used to say three things on every Monday morning call. And one of those three things was, your greatest assets go up and down the elevator every day. I think it's very profound, that statement, because it's true. I'm one of the owners of this company. But at the end of the day, if I didn't show up, One day, the lights are still going to turn on and things are still going to function. It's the people within the business that really make it go. That respect and recognizing that. And, you know, I always say, you don't work for me. I feel like I work for you. I'm here to, as, as the leader, remove any obstacles that you have. And so that one statement is a big part of who I am and my leadership philosophy. The second thing I would tell you is a variation of one of the other things John Mack said, which is, you know, I tend to treat people like owners. I don't treat them like employees. So if you treat them like an owner, they're going to act like an owner. If you treat them like an employee, they're going to act like an employee. And so I think respect plays a big role in that in treating people like owners. And if you give them respect, they're going to give it back to you. And so I really try to treat everybody you know, as if they were an owner of the company. And then the last thing that I would say is, I hate when people introduce me as their boss. I'm not your boss. I'm your business partner. You know, The first couple of times people hear me say that, they're kind of looking at me strange, but then they get it. I treat people like owners. I understand who keeps the lights on. And at the end of the day, they're truly my partners. And if you have that level of respect, and I think that's why the success of this company has continued, or I think it's why the success of this company has continued, you know, in the first six months is those three things, you know, the greatest asset are the people, treat them like owners and also treat them like your partners. And those three things, I think, are are things that why the success has continued, it's also not necessarily learning it, but seeing it proven out again, because that's how I operated during my time in leadership, was looking at my leadership philosophy as those three things. That's brilliant advice, because one of the challenges that I feel if I were to put myself in your shoes or or someone like you going into a new industry, taking over ownership of a large company or small to medium size, but I mean, larger than a handful of people, is I guess kind of media has a a tendency to idolize CEOs and leaders as as kind of like heroes or celebrities almost. And that can create almost an adversarial, like drawing a line between you and the people that you're quote unquote leading, which might put undue pressure on on the relationship and on you and, and so many ways. Whereas now it's like you freed yourself up to show up and bring your best self. And you don't have to necessarily worry if people are showing up on time or bringing their best selves because we have a natural desire to ensure that our investments are successful. So if you're listening collaboration, essentially through your humility and and treating people as partners, it would seem. Yeah. I also think throughout history, there's been a number of leaders that have come into new industries, new businesses. You know, the one that I read a lot. So I think the most popular one would be Lou Gershner when he took over IBM. And if you're ever looking for a great book to read, I think it's like How to Make the Elephant Dance. But he ran RJR Nabisco and then was recruited to run IBM. The book goes into detail about him saying, I don't know anything about technology. You know, how am I supposed to run a technology company? And he basically saved one of the biggest 
brands and history coming in and, you know, really writing the ship. And so I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of really successful people. And, and I'm always curious about what makes them great leaders or, you know, how do they become successful? And I remember one time I was at a Patriots game talking to, I'm from Boston originally, and I was talking to a gentleman that ran a chemical business, huge business. And I said, how much do you know actually about the chemical business. And he said, I couldn't go down to the lab and mix things together, but you know, I can explain how it's done and and I understand enough to be dangerous, but I'm not a chemist. And so I met enough guys like that to make me realize that I didn't need to go out and look for a wealth management business to buy. I could really have an impact on any business given my experience in leadership and really learn enough to be dangerous about the particular industry that you're in. You know, similar to the Lou Gershner IBM example that I shared. That transitions very well to something I wanted to ask you. In your search phase, what made you feel like this is it? This fluid power company is the company for me because for 20 years, you've been in the wealth management space and that's quite a departure, it could seem. I had a client back when I did have clients that owned a company like this. And so I had a resource that I could leverage and I still leverage as far as questions that I have. But I also spent a lot of time learning about the industry. And I noticed that a lot of the owners of these types of companies, these industrial distribution businesses, were aging. They were in their 60s, 70s, and some were even in their 80s. And so a transition was coming at some point. And a lot of them, their children didn't want to get involved in the business. And so that was probably the biggest piece was a very large population of aging owners in the space. We're in the world of value-add distribution, and there's a huge difference between value-add and what I'll call non-value-add. And so the value-add component, I'm not saying it makes it bulletproof from a company like Amazon getting into the space, but it makes it very difficult for someone like Amazon to come in and, and really scale what we do every single day. So that was another attractive piece. Most of these companies, and I say most, not all, service a number of different industries. And so thinking about the downside, you know, I'm not saying these companies are recession-proof, but they certainly aren't as cyclical as a distributor that was solely focused on, say, the energy space. And I looked at a number of industrial distributors, and most of them down in the Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, that geography okay. had the majority of their sales were in energy. And so there was a lot of volatility to their performance. But outside of those geographies, you know, it's pretty steady through good times and bad because they have so many different industries that they touch. So that was another attractive piece. So really those three things, the lots of aging owners, the lack of cyclicality, and then the third thing was the value add component, us being sort of pushed out by an 800 pound gorilla. Those are the three big attractive aspects of why I picked this industry. I see. Still focusing on your search phase, it sounds like the duration was pretty much right in the middle. A year and a half to so acquire is, is actually really good. But they say, I like, think on average, it's at least 11 months. And I think a third after two years don't actually acquire. So you're doing pretty well there. However, that's kind of where the commonality of your search ends, it would seem, because you don't have a traditional search fund in such of having like a board of investors and you are not necessarily self-funded. 
So how would you describe your search model? I guess people describe me as an independent sponsor or a sponsorless fund. You know, you can find this out. I have a single partner. His name is Robert Wolf, a longtime CEO of the Americas of UBS. He's on my website if you look me up. And basically, our deal was he put up the capital to search. And then my day-to-day living expenses were covered out of my personal savings. And we own the entity of North Iron Holdings 50-50. I guess an independent sponsor or okay. sponsorless funds would be the way to describe me. And then, you know, it's interesting. So I had spent a number of years preparing for this and Robert uh, kind of accelerated my timeline of me leaving my career and doing this with his you know, generosity. And I do look at it as generosity because he was taking a big risk by giving me money when at that point in time, it was just me. I didn't have you know, an opportunity, but I had spent a number of years preparing because when I sort of drew the line in the sand, which was August of 2016, that I wanted to do this, you know, I looked at what are the things that I don't know? And you know, I didn't take corporate finance classes or deal structuring classes in business school. So I had no idea how to model out a transaction, you know, how to structure a transaction. I had sourcing experience as far as my years as a financial advisor, okay. sourcing clients, but I didn't have experience sourcing deals. So was leaving a, a high paying job. And so, you know, the unknowns of things like health insurance, it's like, how am I going to, you know, I have a wife and two kids, you know, how am I going to go out and buy health insurance? And so all these things were things that I got comfortable with. And frankly, my wife got comfortable with over the time that I was sort of preparing for this. And then Robert really solidified it and helped me, you know, obviously financially, but also credibility wise with potential sellers and with other investors. The one thing that I thought would be quite a bit harder was finding capital to buy the company. And the day I updated my LinkedIn to say that I was doing what I'm doing, literally probably almost 50 people reached out to me wow. and said, hey, you know, if you buy a business, I'd be interested in investing. And so that ended up being one of the easier parts of the process. Finding sellers ended up being one of the easier parts of the process. I would say the most difficult part was finding the right seller. And so finding the right scenario where with Mitten, you know, I have five people on our leadership team that I lean on every single day. If they weren't here, I would have a very tough time running this business. And so I looked at a number of companies that the sort of technical expertise of this business, because it is a very technical business, a lot of that was the owner. And so finding the right opportunity was ultimately the hardest part of the process. But ultimately, the big vote of confidence for me was partnering up with a guy like Robert and having the support of friends and family and my advisors as I went through this process. I see. Now, you said advisors. That was something I was going to ask you. My understanding, well, one of the perks or pros of the traditional model is that you get a lot of different perspectives. Of course, that could be a trade-off, but if I don't have a background in finance or operations or something like that, I could strategically approach investors who do bring that experience. Now, if it's just a sole sponsor, I imagine that you might not have as much diversity of backgrounds. So how did you address that? Like, Do you have mentors on the side or like you mentioned advisors? How do you get advice? So I do have advisors on the side. They're mainly people from my network. And so if you go to my website, 
for North Iron Holdings, not for Mitten. But if you go to the North Iron Holdings website, you can see the advisors that I leveraged through the process. And every single one played a critical role in me. I don't want to say sidestepping landmines, but they all added a unique perspective to the process and were readily available to me. And I would also tell you, you know, I was very fortunate to get introduced to some people early on that became extremely valuable advisors to me. So for example, you know, I reached out to a number of people in my network to see if they knew of people that could help me. One of those people that I reached out to was one of my professors from business school who introduced me to another professor that I did not know. And this guy was a professor, had owned five companies you know, during his working career, was a senior executive at a very large company, left similar to what I did, bought a business, and then did four add-on acquisitions. And frankly, I am forever indebted to him for the time that he spent with me walking through because he'd have to give them significant detail of the different situations that you were involved in. So we're talking multiple hour phone calls. And I actually never even met this guy because it was during the pandemic. And a lot of our communication, all of our communication was either through Zoom or on telephone. And he was extremely valuable to me throughout the process. So it was a combination of my network that I had built up over time, and then people that other people in my network had introduced me to that either helped answer industry-specific questions or deal-related questions because I had never gone through that process before. They were invaluable. That's good to hear. I've got two final questions for you. One is you've often taken on roles to revitalize business development efforts. So what strategies have you found to be most effective in, in achieving this? I imagine what you mentioned as far as getting to know everyone and kind of what they do one-on-one would probably be a good place to start. Is there anything else that you've noticed? On average, people tend to do this, but maybe you want to do that? I think it goes back to something I said before, and I'll give you kind of the context. I remember my very first boss when I was at Merrill Lynch left and this new guy came in and everybody's always nervous when you get a new boss that you know, somebody that didn't hire you and didn't go through the hiring process with you. And a couple months into his time there, I asked him a question. I said, Gary, how's it going so far? And he turned to me and he goes, you know what? He goes, I really feel like I'm converting more people to be owners as opposed to when I first got here. I felt like, you know, we had a lot of employees. I didn't really know what he meant when he said that. And over time, I knew or grew to understand the meaning behind being an owner or acting like an owner versus an employee. And so, you know, I think if you look at any of the leadership roles I had, whether it was in wealth management or here, I do think treating people like owners and getting them to come up with a strategy and and have a plan and really look at their client and customer base in a different way, in multiple ways, but treating them like an owner really has helped me in those situations. And, you know, it's helped me here because the sales folks, it is their business, you know, especially in the wealth management world, they are their clients. And so if they left the firms that I was at and went to a competitor, most of the clients or customers would go with them. It is their business and and that's the way that they should look at it. And so I, I need to treat them like an owner. And it sounds so simple, but it's a little bit more complex than that. But I don't really know any any other way to describe it. Okay. Yeah. Well-received. That 
kind of answered my second question as well, which I'll, I'll now have to change some up, but I was going to ask, how do you encourage innovation among your teams? I imagine that would largely fall under that approach. So just generally speaking, what advice would you have to any would-be acquisition entrepreneurs or just entrepreneurs full stop? I would tell them that it's a process. And the only way that you're going to succeed is just by getting in the batter's box and getting as many at-bats as possible. I remember the first LOI that we signed was in the first month of me searching. And I remember thinking, man, this was so easy. I mean, I'd spent five years preparing for this and it's over in a month. And sure enough, that fell apart. And I remember being a little freaked out. But then I took a step back and realized, hey, I'm only three months into this thing. I still got 21 months left because I had set a 24-month timeline. And sure enough, just as quick, another opportunity came my way. And then when that one, we signed an LOI. And and when that one fell apart, another one came my way. So Mitten was the fourth letter of intent that we had signed. But I would say I had at least... 50 at bats, you know, where I went through the process up until we'll call it the IOI stage and looked at 50 opportunities. And you learn from every single opportunity that you have. You learn how to ask different questions. All four LOIs that that we signed had different nuances to them. Two of the four, we went through diligence, Mitten being one of those two. And every single one you uncovered a different landmine. And so it was just a learning process for me, you know, having not ever gone through the diligence process or the sales process to buy a company. But for me, coming into it as green as I was, I think the reason I was able to buy a business was because I had a lot of at-bats and got to try a lot of different things. And that's what led to me having success. Okay. Well, Sean, I could ask you a dozen more questions, but I know you're leading a company, so I should probably give you back your evening. But thank you very much for your generosity and sharing a little bit of your wisdom with us. And you seem blessed, and I wish you the the best of luck moving forward. Thanks, David. I appreciate the time. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. Our next guest is Warren Jonas, an eco-visionary, accomplished business mentor, and property investment expert with a wealth of experience spanning from developing new business areas at Rackspace to winning the Google Migrations Partner of the Year Award in 2018. Warren embodies the versatility and ingenuity required to excel in today's dynamic business landscape. Whether you're a budding entrepreneur, an eco-conscious consumer, or just someone looking to learn from an accomplished business leader, join us for an inspiring conversation filled with insights, actionable advice, and unique perspectives. Until then, eyes on the horizon.